and welcome to the Rewelding Podcast with your host, Ella Cottrell. This is a conversational style interview series where I speak to women who are focused on rebuilding oppressive and outdated systems for collective transformation. Rewelding is a socialist term that refers to reconstructing the world or attempting to view it differently. I'm interested in being a conduit for social change, sharing resources and bringing ideas to life that facilitate the evolution of new systems founded on cooperation, equity and community. I'm a feminine embodiment guide, somatic trauma educator with an honors degree in psychology, helping women build safety, sovereignty and autonomy in their bodies. Thank you so much for being here with me as we work together to reimagine a new radiant world for all bodies. I hope you enjoy the episode. Beautiful. So today we have the beautiful Atira Tan with us. So uh, Atira is a speaker, author and educator who has spoken at TEDx, published a number one best-selling book, written articles in peer-reviewed journals and educated thousands of students in trauma-informed programs, universities and organizations, as well as being a PhD candidate at EGS Switzerland. She is also a somatic trauma specialist with almost 20 years experience in the field as an expressive art therapist and a somatic experiencing practitioner who specializes in healing early developmental and attachment wounds, complex trauma, and sexual abuse. Atira is also a yoga and meditation teacher and a women's and human rights activist with a life mission to end child sex slavery in the world today through her organization, Art to Healing. Wow, that's a lot. Thank you so much for being here, Atira. It's truly such an honor to have you in this space. Thank you so much, Ella. And I love to take the time to welcome uh, people who are listening in. And yeah, I'm really, really happy to be here. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we so appreciate it. And as we were just saying, our mutual connection through Jenna Ward, which is how I originally heard of your work. And I heard you speak at her conference that she did. And I was just so captivated from the minute I heard you talk and your advocacy and your passion. And it's actually what lent me to do my own somatic trauma certification afterwards, because I didn't even at the time realize that we could do body-based trauma. I was kind of just in the world of the embodiment certification. So yeah, I just want to extend so much gratitude for opening that doorway to me and being, yeah, just such a champion of, of that world. Oh, thank you so much, Ella. It really warms my heart to hear that, yeah, that really impacted you and you went, you know, onwards to um, really kind of diving into this this realm of somatic trauma healing. Mm, yeah, it's so it's important. And I think, you know, as a segue from that is today we're going to be talking about child sex slavery and it's a very heavy very intense topic very important topic but I just want to urge the listeners today just to check in with your body and the state of your nervous system you know are you in a state to be listening to this right now is this going to be triggering you and maybe push you over your window of tolerance so just a moment to take a pause for the listeners can I be in this space right now maybe is it better for me to tune in tomorrow um, and if you are in a state to listen, it's really important. It's really, really important work. So I would urge you, if it feels safe for you to do so, to tune in and to listen to these to these stories. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to share that really important piece before we kind of transition into the episode. Um, and, you know, from that space, what I'm going to do is just kind of hand it over to you, Atira. I'd really love to hear you 
and the uh, just explain like the advocacy work that you and your organization Art to Healing does and maybe just sharing some of those voices around the child sex slaves in Asia. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you so much, Ella. Yeah, so for the listeners out there, you know, um, I will be kind of sharing uh, stories and also uh, different things about this issue of, you know, child sex slavery, which is um, a growing issue, I would say, in the world. And um, it is really my kind of uh, focus to advocate more for the Asian women who are being sold into child sex slavery and their experiences and also sharing, you know, perhaps how we can help to prevent and also help to create repair for uh, for these women and young girls. So I just urge the listeners, you know, to prioritize their self-care and to do what, you know, to really listen to their bodies, as, as you mentioned. And sometimes there might be a need to take a sacred pause. Mm. And if there is a need, I would uh, really, yeah, invite the listener to take that sacred pause and to tend to what might be arising. Because I think that in our human experience, um, we do share these experiences, even though, you know, the stories I bring might be from, a different skin color or a different culture or a different race but in the human experience you know we have experiences like uh, fear and happiness and love and sadness and joy yeah and there might be times where those feelings kind of overlap and interlap with each other mm. So, yes, I have been, you know, it's really a big, huge passion of mine, um, the charity that I run and the work that we do with child sex slaves. And I'd like to just share a little bit about how I got into this field and how I started to work with survivors. And I think that my journey kind of started uh, when I arrived in Cambodia uh, many, many years ago. I think it was in 2003 or 2004. And it was seven years after the, the war had ended um, in uh, Cambodia. And this was really the first time that I had set foot in a very impoverished country, perhaps a post-war country, uh, uh, what you would call uh, these days a majority world. And uh, it was kind of the first time that I saw the, the desperation and also the poverty and the mistrust that war kind of brings in into the collective field. And uh, part of, you know, what I saw in Cambodia was, you know, young girls being sold by their families into prostitution on the street. Uh, they were sold to, you know, local men, but they were also uh, sold to tourists for as little as three or four kind of US dollars. And the process for me, the first thing that I realized, I think, as a fellow Asian myself, was the amount of privilege that I had in my life. And, you know, just sharing a little bit about my background, I'm also a survivor of trauma myself. Um, you know, I went through a lot of kind of complex trauma during my childhood. However, despite that, I had always, you know, I had food on the table. Uh, I had an education, you know, that was provided for me. And I really felt a deep um, impulse, a very somatic 
somatic kind of fire and desire uh, to use that privilege for uh, something that I could perhaps give back to these uh, young girls and women. The first thing that I was really struck by was the fact that their parents were selling them into you know, prostitution and that they were you know, slaves from their families. And these families were homeless. You know, they were living under uh, tarps and tents on the street. So um, there was this kind of deep need, I think, inside of me to try and understand what was really kind of happening because uh, that is a huge kind of betrayal of trust when a family member or uh, you know a parent as a caregiver um, and sells you know your daughter yeah for you know three or four US dollars on the street. So I really wanted to understand what was happening and the nuances you know around around that. And the second thing that I wanted to uh, share is that when I uh, would meet these girls and have conversations with them or, you know, connect to them on the streets, um, there was something that was very disassociated about these girls, you know, with the trauma that they were experiencing at that time. But there was still light in them. They were still kind of children in a way. Yeah. And I felt a huge kind of impulse to be a kind of mirror to kind of bring out that light that I kind of felt was still there, even though I could really identify the disassociation, the freeze um, that of the state that they were in. And in that moment, you know, I was there as a tourist, I realized I had two kind of decisions to make. There were two choices. And one choice was to continue with my round the world trip. I had a you know ticket that I had you know worked very hard and saved a lot of money for, and it was like my big trip around the world. Um, and the other choice was to follow my instinct and to follow you know this fire that I felt inside and to be curious about what was happening to these girls, and to perhaps be of service in some way and to. Um, share my sense of, you know, the privilege that I had received in my life uh, with them. And so I made the latter choice and I decided to stay in Cambodia and ended up staying there for about two and a half years and got a job with an anti-trafficking organization there where I started working as a therapist. And when I was kind of working as a therapist and I still do work as a therapist uh, with these uh, women and girls, I started to hear a lot of stories about their journey of why they were trafficked, how they were trafficked, you know, some of the blocks and some of the challenges around the cycle of trafficking, because this is, as I mentioned, a very nuanced um, area, which is political, it is cultural, it is gender-based, it is connected to social economics, um, it's connected to religion, sometimes and how um, you know women are viewed as being unequal to being a man and as an Asian woman myself and being brought up with that certain kind of cultural conditioning I definitely really understood um, these inner kind of workings of the cultural piece and the, the kind of collective trauma around gender disparity and inequality 
So a little bit about my background, you know, uh, I was born uh, to, you know, my mother is Chinese, my father comes from Malaysia, I was born in Singapore. And as I was, you know, brought up with my mother, um, she was actually given away, her and her five uh, sisters were given away by my grandmother to foster care because they were born girls and my grandparents kept their only son um, in the household with them. And so there was a lot of cultural conditioning and there was also a layer of collective trauma um, that was very prevalent in my childhood and in my relationship with my mother because she also felt that being born a woman was not equal to being a man. And the reason why these girls are sold into child sex slavery very much in Asia and the paradigm in Asia is because there is this cultural belief that a woman has to sacrifice her life to fulfill the needs of a man, whether that is through marriage or, you know, uh, in very commonly with sex traffic survivors, they will be the firstborn female and they would be sold and the money would be used to fund their brother's education because their brother would be um, kind of more, you know, uh, prized and more valued than a girl. And when I started to work in these shelters across the globe, specifically in Asia, I was hearing these stories multiple times. It was very much a pattern. So out of 10 women, I would hear this from about seven or eight women, um, that the reason why they were born was because, you know, they they firstly came from a very low socioeconomic um, status where there was a lot of children and their parents could not, you know, feed the, their siblings. And as a result, they were sold into trafficking because, you know, uh, they needed to fund their brother's education, uh, so on and so forth. So this is one of the very common stories uh, that we hear with child sex slavery in um, Asia. And what I would love to kind of share is that despite the betrayal that goes on with these girls, a lot of them are sold when they're about eight, nine or 10 because virgins um, can get a, a larger price um, and they're more valuable. Um, their only mission in their life is to earn enough money to repay the karmic debt to their parents. So they feel that because they are born women, they must have done something wrong in their past life. And in this life, they need to make up for the quote unquote, you know, bad things or wrong things that they did because they were not born a man in this life. They were born a woman in this life. So culturally and sometimes religiously, um, there is a belief that, you know, women are born into female bodies because they did something wrong in their past life. And so therefore in this lifetime, they need to um, basically make up for what they did wrong. And so therefore they deserve to be in sex slavery. They deserve the abuse and the neglect that they have experienced, the violence that they experience. And many of the time, many times when they come out of, you know, when they make a decision to leave the brothel or perhaps, you know, to sometimes they are quote unquote rescued by the police or social workers or different organizations, 
the um the pull back into um trafficking is very strong because they feel that they can earn more money than going into a, a job and the job prospects that these organizations kind of offer uh, it's not as big as you know perhaps working in the entertainment sector or being exploited for sex and the reason why they would like to go back to sex work is because they feel that they have an obligation to uh, pay off their karmic debt of what they did in their past life, whatever they did wrong, so that in their next life, they can be um, born to be a man. So there are a lot of, you know, cultural kind of nuances around this and I'm sharing this because it highlights the, I think, collective kind of cultural belief that, you know, around karma and also around the fact that women are, you know, unequal to being a man and that they need to, you know, um, pay back what they did in their past life in order so that they can be born a man. So immediately, I think when women are born in these cultures, there is a sense that, they're, you know, their sense of self-esteem, their value, um, you know, being born women and not as men are kind of diminished. And so this keeps them in a cycle, the vicious cycle, I would say, of child sex slavery. And it's very, very difficult for them to, um, number one, kind of leave the industry because, you know, um, a lot of these women that are sold into these brothels or entertainment centers, they are afraid of what the brothel owners might do to their families uh, because there is threat uh, or kind of danger. Um, but also there is this kind of belief that they deserve it and they should stay in it. And this is one way that they can kind of pay off their karmic debt so that they can born be born in the next life uh, as a man. Hmm. So this is kind of, I think, very interesting um, information. And this, I think, when we look at the recovery, so our uh, organization, Art to Healing, what we really focus on uh, is advocating for the stories of these women. But what we also really wanting to advocate is that healing is possible after abuse, after something like exploitation, slavery, or trafficking. And what we are trying to do, what we have done so far, is that we are mapping the journey of recovery for these child sex slaves and trying to understand what is really needed in order to, you know, for them to break that vicious cycle of child sex slavery, but more importantly, really reclaim their sense of sovereignty and also their sense of value as a human being uh, in, in this life. And you can imagine, you know, with this cultural kind of conditioning, uh, which is pervasive and it's also very prevalent in Asia, uh, it can be very difficult it can take a lot of resilience, a lot of strength uh, for them to kind of, number one, break out of this cultural mindset, but also to heal from the abuse and the violence that have been, you know, um, that they've been subjected to as when they are being trafficked. And when they come out of trafficking, they are also subject to a lot of abuse because there is a lot of discrimination and a lot of persecution. Um, both in their families. So sometimes there is a lot of kind of family pressure for them to go back into sex work again, or um, sometimes the family members would re-traffic them again. Um, uh, but basically, you know, there is a proverb that says, you know, in Cambodia that once a cloth is dirtied, it is always dirtied. Uh, 
So there is no way of, you know, really kind of true redemption uh, when a woman, you know, is involved in this kind of work, even though it wasn't their fault mm -hmm. that they were sold. And this is something that really is extremely heartbreaking because um, it wasn't their fault that they entered, you know, um, this this experience in and of itself and um but they do kind of feel that it's their fault and they do feel that you know they're a bad person and there is a lot of guilt and there's a lot of shame that's there in addition to the complex developmental piece of trauma uh that comes in with child sex slavery so there are a lot of layers and it is very nuanced um, you know, I think on the complex developmental piece, a lot of these girls are sold when they're very young and they come from very impoverished uh, backgrounds. So for many of them, um, there was a lot of things that were missing uh, for when they were kind of growing up, you know, in addition to kind of abuse, many mm. of them were neglected. Uh, many of them that never had their emotional kind of needs met. And as a result, you know, um, they are kind of in this state of freeze um, uh, because they need to protect themselves from so much, um, you know, so much suffering, so much pain and abuse and neglect. Mm. But what I would really love to share is that healing is possible, you know, and uh, what we do in Arti Healing is that we work on um, three different levels with our organization with these girls and women. And the first thing that we do is that we kind of partner with anti-trafficking, local anti-trafficking organizations that are, you know, they speak the language, they have this understanding uh, in, you know, of the cultural kind of collective trauma. Um, and we empower them with uh, tools such as somatic experiencing, you know, uh, different uh, somatic psychology approaches um, to kind of understand trauma and how that works in the nervous system, how it works with the body. We also provide um, skills and professional developmental, you know, training on different things like relational trauma, attachment trauma, um, uh, and different kind of, um, yeah, helpful kind of interventions for these girls and these women. So we try and upskill uh, organizations that have these survivors in shelter care so that they can be consistent in their therapeutic response to these girls and, and women. The second thing that we do is that we run, um, you know, both group and also we work with the survivors directly and offer them kind of trauma therapeutic kind of support, um, either in groups or also one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. And the last thing that we do is the research, which you can kind of find on our website, noartihealing.org. Uh, we have done a lot of kind of research, independent research on mapping the trauma uh, the recovery of trauma for uh, these women. So, you know, Asian women who are born to female bodies who have been sold into child sex slavery and the different elements that organizations or therapists really need to look at when we look at the recovery process because it is so complex and it's so nuanced. Mm. You have the developmental piece 
Um, you know, you have the relational piece because, you know, there is a betrayal in, uh, um, you know, families. There is a lot of grief and loss around families, uh, especially in the Asian culture. Um, there is a lot of connections to your family. Yeah. And family is really, really important in Asian culture. So, you know, that break of trust or that rupture is something that is so great for these girls and, and women. And this is really something that sometimes I feel that that sense of uh, grief and loss around family is something that is very overlooked and really needs to um, be tended to, especially with survivors, especially in Asia, because it is such a huge piece then of course you know there is um that building of resources you know and um moving more from the freeze response into the fight and flight response and then back to social engagement um and a lot of these survivors in their nervous system are kind of in a freeze response and they have probably never really felt safe in their lives so really helping them to cultivate that felt sense of safety on the inside really takes time and it also takes time to unpack uh, these you know, experiences that they've experienced and to allow the impulses of what they wanted to do in those experiences to protect themselves. That is also a piece that we really need to look at. And then the last piece I think which is really important is around building that sense of resiliency and sovereignty. And a lot of that piece is around the cultural piece that I just named about a woman, you know, changing the mindset of uh, the fact that perhaps women feel unequal being a man, that they don't feel worthy um, or valuable. And that is, you know, one thing that um, you need to really change the sense of self-esteem and the, the sense of self um, and ego strength for the survivor before they can be kind of integrated successfully, I think, in the outside world, perhaps in a different job or a different occupation with a different community of people that they can feel kind of safe in. It takes a lot of strength, I think, for a survivor to be reintegrated back into the community because there is a lot of community persecution and there is a lot of shame and kind of hiding as well. So they don't really feel free. They're constantly kind of hypervigilant when they kind of move back into the community. And there needs to be a lot of kind of uh, strength, a lot of courage, a lot of bravery, um, and a, 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 you know, a lot of support as well to maintain that felt sense of safety as they move into the world. And perhaps the world is an unsafe place for them to be in. Mm. and healing is possible and survival you know thriving is also I think possible and what I love to share is that you know I've met um, and worked with a lot of survivors that are thriving mm. and have gone out to um, really help other women and other girls who have been in similar situations as well and, you know, my hope is that through this interview um, that we can provide support to those survivors as well who are really working tirelessly in survivor-led organizations to stop the issue of trafficking from happening. Mm, wow. 
I just, as you're speaking, my body is just covered in goosebumps because, you know, there's so much to unpack here. And I just feel so grateful for this really holistic way of trauma treatment that you and your organization are approaching it in, in that, you know, one of my, my topics to cover was like, what are the systems that are perpetuating this insidious cycle? And you named them, right? Capitalism, you know, or, or inequity in wealth, right? That's huge. People are in these desperate situations. Then we have the cultural implica- implications of men are better than women, uh, the religious implications of, you know, karmic debt and, and, you know, the social and all the things that are at play here, which is continuing the cycle of this these these child sex slaves. And I just feel so... I mean, one part of my body is just feeling so like grief, just grief for these young women, as you said, sold at eight, nine, because that's when they're most valuable to, and, and there's just so much of that sadness in my body. And then there's just so much hope as you speak, like healing is possible. And this is the way that our organization is approaching it. And I love that you're taking a uh, body-based approach to healing as well. Like that somatic experiencing piece is so important when we're working with the, uh, with the, you know, with trauma, which is in our body, it's the issues are in our tissues, right? And you spoke to that uh, personal piece too, of your mother who held that, that pain too, only one, you know, one generation up of, of being given away because, you know, who am I, but just a woman, and and I think that's really important to unpack is that this is a gendered issue. And I'm not sure if you can speak to this, but I don't think that there are child sex slaves that are boys, uh, particularly in Asia. I, I'm sure that that's different in Australia and, and Western cultures. But it, what you're seeing is primarily women that are sold. Is that correct? Well, our organization works with both men and women. I mean, the t- statistics are that 89% uh, of uh, child sex slaves are women. And so, you know, um, mostly in my life, I've worked with women. So I know the terrain of, um, you know, what it feels like to live in a female Asian body very mm-hmm. well. Um, and, you know, our organization uh, primarily works with that. And we have also worked with uh, young boys as well who are also sold into child sex slavery. And if you look at, um, you know, uh, countries like the Philippines, for instance, you know, there are there there is also a lot of boys that are sold into child sex slavery too. Um, the percentage in Nepal, you know, that we've done most work. Uh, I think that this is quite an old study already, but it's kind of. Perhaps, you know, I would say maybe dated in 2012, so that's 11 years ago. It did kind of say that the statistics are around 89%. So 89% are girls and 11% are men. Um, But the trafficking that happens with men and young boys are a little bit different from, uh, from, from, from girls. However, the trauma that happens as well with boys that are being trafficked, you know, um, are also very severe and they also have their repercussions. And I think that at times for boys, uh, young men or boys who are being trafficked, um, there are not enough resources 
out there for these young boys who have been trafficked. And there are different layers of um, complexities as well, working with boys who have been trafficked um, than girls. Mm. I can really, you know, I I don't feel that, you know, I um, I would like to have more information to speak on the experience for young boys, which I will not, but I really do want to acknowledge that there are also many young boys out there who have been trafficked and we have worked with organizations uh, who do work with boys who are being trafficked or young men who are being trafficked even here in Thailand where I am, we're currently working with an organization called Urban Light, and they focus on young men who have been trafficked into sex slavery as well. So it's definitely, um, yeah, here, and child sex slavery happens with both genders, all yeah. genders, really, mm. in fact, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, thank you for speaking to that. And and as you're talking, it's um, reminding me of a metaphor that when I was going through my somatic trauma course, we were, they told us about which was um typically trauma education and trauma work focuses on pulling people drowning people out of the water and we're going in and we're pulling them out of the water and we're pulling them out of the water but at some point we have to look up to the bridge and see why people are falling into the water in the first place and I think it's such profound metaphor because it's so often we can just target an individual and here let me heal your body and which is obviously very very important but the systemic the collective level which is perpetuating these insidious cycles I think to me is where I have the most grief and it's what my work centers Mm -hmm. around like shifting this stuff but it's so fundamentally broken and Mm -hmm. you know we we rely on organizations such as Art to Healing to try and shift the narrative here and I wonder you know how did we get to a point where this is happening on such a large scale where without with very minimal government intervention Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's a really big question and that's a very deep question. Um, And I think that, you know, in terms of child sex slavery, the history, I think, of Asia is, you know, that women are kind of subservient to to men. So I think that that is really kind of a a very big piece Um, in Nepal. You know, if you track the history of Nepal, um, slavery has been happening for, I think, centuries where, you know, the king or, um, you know, more uh, people that are in political kind of power or that come from a higher kind of more social economic status have always had slaves. And those slaves, the slave actually um, included children as well. Um, So there are, I think, in, in different cultures, it's different and um, that power kind of disparity and the kind of sense of the lack of value for human life. Um, and I think also kind of the trauma, you know, that we experience collectively and that impact of, you know, collective, I think intergenerational trauma is also a piece that we kind of also, I think, really need to, to look at. And especially in Asia, where countries um, lean more in towards the more patriarchal, mm-hmm. I think, way of being in the world where it is around power and control and also, you know, greed and also money. Um, there is a lot of, you know, vulnerability. Yeah, and a, ver- mm-hmm. a huge kind of lack of resources too. And I think that when, um, you know, 
communities are vulnerable, uh, they can be very susceptible to, um, yeah, being exploited and uh, being, you know, really taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. And I think that part of, you know, what we're talking about, you know, looking at the bridge is really prevention. So uh, I think that, you know, the prevention is a very huge topic and, you know, prevention is definitely better than cure, but, you know, we've done quite a number of prevention campaigns like through art, you know, really advocating um, the issue of child sex slavery and what really happens when a woman is sold. I'll tell you actually a, a really beautiful story um, before we finish our podcast that, you know, I, I think that's a, a beautiful story um, that I remember very clearly. So we do a lot of art advocacy. So uh, through expressive art therapies, you know, in our sessions um, and in our groups, these girls will create um, art pieces and artwork, you know, um, that can that shares the the subjective narrative of their experience of being trafficked. And we would have these exhibitions so that you know people could come and understand, and they were part of education awareness, but also prevention uh, for of trafficking and it, you know trafficking happening. And this exhibition was in a cafe where there was a you know I was working with these Crimea boys and they were beautiful. They were actually street boys that. Um, were supported by an organization as well. They were found in the streets and they were homeless. So they uh, provide food, shelter, and also education. So these you know boys can start living off the street. But maybe I had like 15 boys that were helping me with, you know, setting up the exhibition and, you know, moving furniture around. And when the exhibition was, you know, set up and the artworks were in place, the artworks came with a narrative, a subjective narrative of, a woman and her experience in trafficking and I'll never forget this experience because there was a boy that was he was there and he was helping me and we had a great rapport with each other he was about 18 to 19 years old and he started to read these stories that were kind of framed on the wall and he started to kind of go through the whole entire exhibition and when he had finished going through the entire exhibition he turned to me with tears in his eyes and he said to me, oh, wow, you know, I never knew that these girls that I went to, you know, that I paid money for, go through this story. And I will tell you now that I will never do that again, because now I know that, you know, this is their life. And, you know, by, by going to these girls, I'm actually perpetuating suffering. And I feel so sorry for them. And I feel so sorry for what I did. And I, I didn't know that. So this is, I think, you know, a very bittersweet, but very beautiful kind of story because I feel that the more I think uh, folks kind of know about what happens in trafficking, I think that they can, with that awareness and that education as part of the, the prevention yeah. And we also do, you know, for example, in some of our projects in Laos, we've had a rotating kind of like a, a an art therapy truck, like an art exhibition truck um, that would go to villages and, you know, um, the artwork and the subjective narratives of these girls would be kind of shown to villages, actually uh, parents that would sell their children into 
slavery. And we also got that same reaction from the village and also from their parents that they didn't know that that was happening, you know, that they sold their children, but they didn't know that that was, you know, the case. And they were just not educated in, you know, the abuse that happens um, and so on and so forth. And that can also help to prevent trafficking from happening, you know, education and spreading awareness and helping parents and children to identify traffickers mm -hmm. that, you know, have a certain way of coming into the village to traffic these young girls with the lure of money, you know, with the lure of a job, with the lure of, um, you know, beautiful clothes and, you know, a very kind of glamorous life where, you know, all of these are actually just lies because the, you know, the truth is that these girls are really sold into a very torturous environment mm. most of the time. Yes. So I think that, that, that you know, uh, thinking about the systemic, um, you know, reasons of why this is happening and also understanding that prevention is as important as recovery I think uh, is is very essential. Yeah, when we yeah. look at the, you know, the issue of child sex slavery today, especially in Asia. Mm, absolutely, and I that story was so touching because it really speaks to the power of education. And I I wonder while before we kind of wrap up today, I wanted you just to quickly touch on you know this uh, what you label a woman centric approach to rebuilding oppressive systems. I feel like that can be something that we can listen to and think, okay, great, we're moving towards that. So I wonder if you would spend a moment just kind of laying out what that's what that is for you. Yeah, so happy that that you asked. Um, so even in you know this contemporary, I think trauma paradigm that we uh, are in right now. So you know, it is a very separatist model that separates the parts. So even when we look at fight, flight, freeze, spawning, social engagement, we're still kind of breaking down those parts and looking at it from a very, how to say, Cartesian kind of paradigm, so to speak, um, which is not really looking at the wholeness and the coherency of perhaps how these, you know, uh, you know how how they they work together. All different kind of parts work together in a whole. Mm. So the more kind of woman-centric, you know, paradigm that I'm also experimenting with and investigating and um, researching is a paradigm that looks as at the whole and how these parts kind of connect with each other and looking at, you know, um, really, yeah, looking at wholeness, yeah, and this, uh, um, kind of how to say hmm, this understanding that perhaps as human beings we are born whole and there is a blueprint that everybody is kind of born with unfortunately that blueprint that we are born with as human beings are not held with enough care and not enough support and therefore the blueprint starts to wither away or perish yeah but what if we can bring in enough kind of support to also support the blueprint to thrive in addition to what we know about fight, flight, freeze, and also social engagement and fawning, 
and to look at you know what is kind of needed um, from that more kind of that place of coherency and wholeness and support rather than breaking these parts into very kind of separate parts that we kind of understand to the very you know very very intricately but I think that how they connect as a whole and that relation to the relational aspect which I feel is a very woman-centric aspect you know it's around relationship it's really around support it's really around kind of safety and how we can bring that it's not just models of therapy it's really what happens in the interpersonal space and the interrelational space that actually also provides relief and also provides support really needs to be kind of looked at and, and that, that has weight to it as well. And I think that in our current kind of paradigm, there is not enough focus placed on relationships interpersonal safety and that's really important because we're working with survivors of complex trauma so there's a lot of relational uh breaches yeah and ruptures but kind of taking more of that yeah um that approach of looking at what is in between those spaces yeah and how can we mine those gaps between in the relationship between these parts so that is what I mean by a more kind of woman-centric uh, approach, uh, where we pay attention to the blueprint and we pay attention to the layers of support, layers of safety to what the blueprint kind of means to, to thrive, as well as that uh, understanding of kind of wholeness and also coherency. So really holding the parts, but also holding the unified field <laughs> or, you know, the whole kind of picture um, as we are, yeah, moving with, with trauma recovery versus the more kind of Cartesian, the more kind of um, separatist model, which is all about interventions. Yeah, it's all about models. Even in the somatic experiencing world, it's all about, you know, we're looking at five flight freeze form social engagement through a certain lens which was also created by a white man um, that, you know, lived in a, a white male body. And I think that when we work with, you know, these very complex um, traumas such as child sex slavery in Asia with that Asian cultural conditioning, um, we need to kind of shift our approach to something that is more holistic and more mm. unified. Mm, I totally I totally agree and as you're speaking my whole body just felt like yes you know like I can't wait to hear you know how this translates and I can't wait to just keep following on with your work I mean you're just truly incredible and people listening I'm sure will just feel the complete passion and your advocacy and how much you've really done so um, before we sign off I'd love for you to just share how people can get involved if they're interested in in um, art to healing and also your work as well. Yeah, so um, if you like to donate to our cause, we are 100% volunteer run. Um, so the money that you donate will go directly to the women. We have very low overhead costs because we are a volunteer run um, charity. 
So, you know, if you'd like to donate to the cause to really help us, we don't really have very much government funding and it is sometimes very difficult to get funding to do what we really want to do with these women. So you can jump on our website and hit the donate button and there you can, um, you know, really support us that way. Um, if you would like to volunteer as well, there is also, uh, you know, uh, vacancies to help us volunteer too. And as we, as I mentioned, we are volunteer run charities, so any help would be very appreciated, especially the more kind of administration office, you know, um, kind of logistical side of our organization. So if you would like to support us in that way, you can also go onto the website and fill out a volunteer form and, um, yeah, we would love to have you on board. Oh, wow. Th I mean, thank you so much for not only the work that you do, but for the way that you speak and just such an honor to hear you today and to to have this moment to share. I really, really appreciate you coming on board. Um, so in honoring your time, I'll, we'll say goodbye, but I just thank you so much. It was amazing. I've learned so much. Thank you so much, Ella. It's such a pleasure to be here.